Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. With so much turmoil around us, we often forget where to fix our eyes. We could fix them on the muddy waters of our troubles, or we could fix them on the water flowing from the temple of God and drink deeply. You're listening to The Temple and the River by Rev. Peter Yonker. Our scripture reading tonight is from the book of Ezekiel. That is not a well-traveled book when it comes to sermons. But tonight we are going to travel in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 1 through 12. And this is, this is a passage that's in the middle of a vision in Ezekiel that is uh, eight chapters long. And it's all a vision, as you will hear, of a temple. Let's listen. The man, and that's a person who was escorting uh, Ezekiel around the temple, brought me back to the entrance of the temple. And I saw water coming from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from the, under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside of the outer gate facing east, and the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits. And then he led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits, and he led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand, and he led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and it was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. And he asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river, and when I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. And he said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region, goes down into the Arabah, where it enters into the Dead Sea. And when it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live where the river flows. There will be a large number of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from En Gedi to En En Gaim. And there will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and the marshes will not become fresh. They'll be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit. Every month they'll bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. And their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. This is the word of the Lord. As I said, Ezekiel is one of the least traveled books of the Bible, and there is good reason for that, um, because it, it, it's, it's difficult. It's a difficult book. It's, it's dominated by two main things. There's a lot of severe judgment in Ezekiel, and then the rest of it, when it's not judgment, are these, these wild visions that are hard to understand. I read one of the easier-to-picture visions. Most of the other visions are much more difficult than that. Uh, and, and so wild that you wonder, um, what, what do they mean? What, what purpose do they serve for me? 
And, and with the judgments, the judgments are so severe that they're the kind of things that you don't want to read to even young children. So tonight, to, to think a little bit about Ezekiel, I chose this passage from uh, the end in one of the visions, the end of the book with that eight-chapter vision of the temple. And that starts when Ezekiel is taken up to a high mountain and he meets a man with a measuring rod in his hand. And for eight chapters, this man is the guide for Ezekiel as he gets this tour of this, this enormous temple. And, and he and this guy go through literally every square inch of the temple. It is a very strange tour that this man with the measuring rod gives. Why is it strange? Well, first of all, if you read these chapters, most of the tour and most of these chapters is full of measurements. There's a reason he has a measuring rod in his hand, because this man measures absolutely everything in this temple as he goes. The thickness of every wall, the size of every courtyard, the height of every wall, every distance, every bit is mentioned. And just to show you a little bit of how that is, here's some from chapter 41 of Ezekiel, and you'll hear what I mean. Ezekiel says, I saw that the temple had a raised base all around it, forming the foundation of the side rooms. It was the length of the rod, six cubits long. The outer wall of the side rooms was five cubits thick. The open area between the side rooms of the temple and the priest rooms was 20 cubits wide all around the temple. There were entrances from the side room from the open area, one on the north and another on the south, and the base adjoining the open area was five cubits wide all around. Okay, not the easiest stuff, and it goes on like this, verse after verse, chapter after chapter. And after a while, you say, wow, this is, this is interesting, but what does it mean for me? Why all these measurements? The second thing that's strange about the vision is the size of the temple. It is absolutely enormous. Scholars who've worked it out say it's about a mile long, and a mile deep. So it's one square mile, absolutely huge. It would dwarf Solomon's temple, much, much larger than Solomon's temple. It's otherworldly in its dimensions. Third strange feature, and that's the thing we heard about in our passage, is the river that flows out of this temple. It starts with just this little trickle that you could step over with one step that a child could wade in. But before you go a mile, it becomes this river that is so deep that no one could cross it, says Ezekiel. And it grows like this, even though there's no other water sources coming in. There's no tributaries feeding it. Somehow it grows from this trickle to this river no one can cross. And then finally, last bit of strangeness. Even though there's all this measurement in these eight chapters of the temple, and it seems like you get these very precise descriptions of every room, if you sit down with a pen and a pencil and a drafting board and you try to draw an architectural rendering of this temple, you will be very frustrated. Gregory the Great, 6th century pope, intellectual great pope, um, once tried to sit down and, and map out the temple of Ezekiel according to all the measurements that are laid out at the end of the book, and he got so frustrated he stopped. And he said this, it is not possible to work out the construction of this complex according to the letter of the text. And he gave up on the task and went back to simpler things like running the Catholic Church. So what do we do with this 
this heavenly vision of this temple at the end of Ezekiel. Is there a word here for us? Is there something here for our lives and for our times? Well, I think there is. And in order to hear that word, we have to remember the context in which Ezekiel speaks. Okay, Bible scholars, Bible knowledge people. Where is Ezekiel when he has these visions and when he speaks these words? He is in Babylon. He's in exile. By the Chibar River is where he has his first vision of the book. So he's in Babylon. And he's been there about 25 years. So as he's having this vision of this grand heavenly temple, for the rest of the Israelites who are in exile, they're going through this really hard time and their memory of the temple would be all negative. If they were to think of the temple, if you were to start talking about the temple, it would be almost be like recalling a PTSD type experience because the last time they saw the temple was when the Babylonians were breaking it down. When they think of the temple, they think of the Babylonians ripping the, the curtains that surrounded the Holy of Holies, the place where they had all their religious attention focused. The last time they saw the temple, the Babylonians were smashing to pieces the Ark of the Covenant and stripping it of all its gold. The last time they saw the temple, the Babylonians burned the place to the ground. So just thinking about the temple would have been negative for them. And when you add that to their situation, they were in a very dark place. Every day, they would go out into the city of Babylon and the men would be in hard labor. The women would go down to the river Kabar and draw water for their Babylonian masters and they would feel powerless and they would feel like the glory of God that had inhabited the temple was absolutely gone from their lives. The whole book of Ezekiel, when you think of that context, you could see that the whole book of Ezekiel is aimed precisely at their situation. The book starts with judgment, and the judgment tells them why they are there. Ezekiel says it's because of idolatry and because of injustice. Those two things have brought the wrath of God on them and have sent them out into exile. So it tells them why they are there. And then, more important to our passage, the book of Ezekiel starts to change their mindset. It works on their PTSD. Instead of those dark visions of the Babylonians destroying their city and destroying their temple, Ezekiel tells them that there is a better temple. Changes the vision they have in their minds when they think of a temple. I can almost imagine Ezekiel preaching a sermon on this passage for the people. He comes in to the, the little synagogue there in Babylon and it's just a small little room. And the Israelites are gathered here and there's not very many of them, maybe as many as are here tonight of you. And the place is dark and it's lit with candles and, and the, everyone's face looks tired and they look sad and there's not much hope in people's eyes. And Ezekiel stands up in front of them and he says, listen to what the Lord says. I see that you're discouraged. I see that you're tired. I see that you're exhausted. I know you wonder if my power is gone and if my glory is gone from your lives, but don't be afraid. Let me tell you something. That earthly temple that you miss so much and that old city of Jerusalem, that's only a shadow of the other Jerusalem 
And that temple that you saw is only a shadow of the real temple of God. Let me tell you something, and I can imagine Ezekiel leaning forward. I have seen that temple. The Lord gave me a vision of that temple. And it is huge, and it is strong, and the walls are wide, and they are high, and there's nothing in heaven and earth that can shake it. And you know what else? There's a river. It flows out from the temple. It starts as just a trickle, but then it gets wider and wider and wider. Compared to this river, the, the, the Kibar River in Babylon is just a muddy stream. This river is the greatest river that you've ever seen in all of humankind. And the water in this river is fresh, not muddy. It flows to the Dead Sea, and even the Dead Sea comes to life with pomegranates and trees and green grass and fish and fishermen. Don't give up, my people. You may feel like your lives are just a little trickle of water. But in God, they will be a mighty stream. Do you see how those words are aimed exactly at what those people would have been going through? They walked every day in the shadow of Babylonian temples. Ezekiel, through the vision of God, would show them a far greater heavenly temple. They walked every day by the streams of Babylon. Ezekiel in this vision, God in this vision, shows them the mighty river of God. They keep their eyes on the temple, they keep their eyes on the river, and that gives them the strength to live as people of hope in the face of their troubles. I think our hope today, as Christians in 2021, works almost exactly the same way. As we face our troubles, we still keep our eyes on the temple and on the river. Only for us, the temple is no longer a building. In the New Testament, we see the temple has been fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. John chapter 2. Three days I will break down this building and raise it up again. And the temple he's talking about, says John, is his body. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. You see it when he's baptized in the Jordan River, right? What comes down on the glory of the Lord. It's like Exodus. Exodus chapter 40, when the tabernacle is done, the Shekinah glory of God comes in the temple. You see the same thing happen to Jesus in the river of the Jordan when he's baptized. He's the fulfillment of the temple. And when he dies on the cross, the, the curtain is torn in two because he is now our gate into God. He is our temple. And we keep our eyes on him as we go through life. Now he's ascended to the right hand of God and we in our daily lives are constantly raising our eyes to the heavenly place to keep our eyes on him. And when we think of him up there, what flows from his throne? A river through the streets of the city, starts out small at the throne and becomes this mighty river that goes down to every baptismal font in every Christian church over this whole world and makes a covenant people for him. It washes the world clean. It makes all things new. So now as we go through our lives, we keep our eyes on the temple Jesus up there and the river that flows from him. And you see that pattern in the New Testament. This is absolutely what the New Testament Christians do. Hebrews. Let us run with perseverance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, 
the temple, the author and perfecter of our faith. Colossians chapter 3. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Set your mind on things above, for you died and your life is now hidden with God in Christ. Keep your eyes on the temple. Your life is secured in his temple. Acts, the stoning of Stephen. Remember when Stephen was stoned, going through that traumatic moment, what did he do? He lifts his eyes up to heaven. He sees heaven open up and the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. He sees the temple. And all that heavenly focus doesn't mean that we're escapists. What it does, it makes us partake of the river so that our lives become that water that we can pour out into the world and make the Dead Sea flourish. Here's a story. I don't know if you've ever heard of a man named James Zwerg. A name like that, that never does a, a name and a person sound so sort of middle of the road if, if his name is James Zwerg. But James Zwerg did a remarkable thing. He was one of the Freedom Riders. In 1961, he was on the Freedom Ride, and the Freedom Ride, if you remember, was this bus that went around through the South uh, full of civil rights protesters. And what they would do is they'd go to these different Southern cities and they get out and they do small acts of civil disobedience, like sit at a lunch counter. And it was their way of protesting the policies that were still in place in those days. And in every place the Freedom Riders went, um, of course, they uh, faced opposition. But when they got to Montgomery, Alabama, uh, it was a little more serious than usual. There were bigger crowds, and they were young men, and they had baseball bats, and they had iron rods, and they surrounded the bus that the Freedom Riders were in. And everyone was really nervous. No one wanted to get off the bus. But as James Berg sat there, um, he'd been reading Psalm 27 that day and meditating on Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? The Lord is my light and my salvation. What shall man do to me? That was what he was thinking over and over again. He was fixing his eyes on the temple. And after a while, he realized he needed to be the first one out of the bus. So he got up, him and John Lewis actually got up, and they got out of the bus. And he says, as he was going down the gangplank of the bus, he was saying, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? And he went out into the crowd. And of course, the crowd beat him. Beat him seriously. Beat him to within an inch of his life. He was knocked unconscious, and they beat him after he was unconscious. The next morning, he was in the hospital. His face was a mess, and a reporter took a picture of it. That picture went all over the country, and it raised the profile of their cause and caused outrage. Some people tried to stop the river, but instead of stopping the river, they made the river even wider. Mr. Zwerg is an ordinary man, a regular Joe, but God used the small trickling stream of this man who kept his eye on the temple to create a river of change so wide that it still continues to water and bear fruit. You people will not be asked to step off a bus this week into an angry mob. But you will be asked to do something hard, something scary. And when that day comes, when that moment comes, you could fix your eyes on your troubles 
and drink out of the muddy ritter of your fears. Or you could keep your eyes on the temple and drink from the stream that flows from there. I don't want to tell you what to do, but if I were you, I would drink from the stream. Amen. Lord, you know how the troubles and concerns and worries and fears of our life are often the things that we see. Thank you for this place. Thank you for your word that lifts up our eyes to your temple and to your face. And we thank you that from your temple and from your face and from your place, a stream of living water still flows into our life, Lord. Thank you that here we can drink of that stream. We pray, Lord, that drinking from this stream with our eyes on you, we may be your people in this world for another week. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.